0: Hello again, and welcome to this episode of the Talks at Google podcast, where great minds meet. I'm Lauren, bringing you this week's episode with author Yuval Harari. Talks at Google brings the world's most influential thinkers, creators, makers, and doers all to one place. Every episode of this podcast is taken from a video that can be seen at youtube.com slash talks at Google. Yuval Noah Harari, macro historian, professor, best-selling author of Sapiens and Homo Deus, and one of the world's most innovative and exciting thinkers, discusses his newest work, 21 Lessons for the 21st Century. Described as a truly mind-expanding journey through today's most pressing issues, 21 Lessons for the 21st Century reminds us to maintain our collective focus in the midst of dizzying and disorienting change. In conversation with Googler Wilson White, here is Yuval Noah Harari, 21 Lessons for the 21st Century.
1: Thank you, Professor, for joining us. Uh, Before before getting started, I have to say that when uh, the announcement went out across Google about this talk, I got several emails from many Googlers around the world who uh, uh, told me that they had either read or are currently reading one or multiple of your books. Uh, So if you are contemplating a fourth book, maybe on the afterlife, uh, no spoilers uh, during this conversation. I want to start with uh, uh, maybe some of the themes in uh, uh, both the, your current book, with 21 Lessons, as well as uh, Homo Deus. Uh, because I'm the father of, of two young kids. I have uh, two daughters, a five-year-old and a three-year-old. And uh, the future that you paint in Homo Deus is, is, is interesting. Uh, so I'd like to ask you, what should I, what should I be teaching
2: my daughters? That, Nobody knows how the world would look like in 2050, except that it will be very different from today. So the most important things to emphasize in in education are things like uh, uh, emotional intelligence and mental stability, because the one thing that they will need for sure is the ability to reinvent themselves repeatedly throughout their lives. It's really the first time in history that we don't really know what particular skills to teach young people, because we just don't know in what kind of world they will be living. But we do know they will have to reinvent themselves. And especially if you think about something like the job market, maybe the greatest problem they will face will be psychological, because at least beyond a certain age, it's very, very difficult for people to reinvent themselves. So we kind of need to build identities. I mean, if if previously, if traditionally, people built identities like stone houses with very deep foundations, now it makes more sense to build identities like tents that you can fold and move elsewhere. Because we don't know where you will have to move, but you will have to move. You will have to move.
1: Uh, so I may have to go back to school now to learn these things so that I can teach uh, the next generation of, hu- of, of humans here. Um, in 21 Lessons uh, for the 21st Century, you tackle uh, several themes that e- uh, even we at Google, um, as a company who are on the leading edge of technology and how technology is being deployed uh, in society, we wrestle with some of the same issues. Um, Tell me a bit about your, 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 your thoughts on why democracy is in crisis. That's a theme in, your, in, the, in the current book, and I want to explore that a bit. Why you think uh, liberal democracy as, as we knew it uh, is currently in crisis?
2: Well, the, the entire liberal democratic system is built on philosophical ideas we've inherited from the 18th century, especially the idea of free will which underlies uh, uh, the, the basic motos of the liberal worldview, like the voter knows best, the customer is always right, uh, beauty is in the eye of the beholder, uh, follow your heart, do what feels good. All, all these liberal mottos, which are the foundation of our political and economic system, they assume that the ultimate authority is the free choices of individuals. I mean, there are, of course, all kinds of limitations and boundary cases and so forth, but when push comes to, to shove, for instance, in, in, in the economic field, then corporations will tend to retreat behind this last line of defense that this is what the customers want. The customer is always right. If the customer want it, it can't be wrong. Who are you to tell the customers that they are wrong? Now, of course, there are many exceptions, but this is the basics of the free market. This is the first and last thing you learn. The customer is always right. So the ultimate authority in the economic field is the desires of the customers. And this is really based on a philosophical and metaphysical view about free will. That the desires of the customer they emanate, they represent the free will of human beings, which is the highest authority in the universe, and therefore we must abide by them. And it's the same in the political field, with the voter knows best. And this was okay for the last two or three centuries, because even though free will was always um, a myth, and not a scientific reality, science knows of only two kinds of processes in nature. It knows about deterministic processes and it knows about random processes. And their combination results in probabilistic processes. But randomness and probability, they are not freedom. They mean that I can't predict your actions with 100% accuracy because there is randomness. But a random robot is not free. If you connect a robot, say, to a, a uranium, a piece of uranium, and and the decisions of the robot is determined by random processes of the disintegration of uranium atoms, so you will never be able to predict exactly what this robot will do. But this is not freedom, this is just randomness. Um, Now, this was always true from a scientific perspective. Humans, certainly they have a will, they make decisions, they make choices, but they are not free to choose the will. Their choices are not independent, they depend on a million factors, genetic and and hormonal and social and cultural and so forth, which we don't choose. Now up till now in history, the humans were so complicated that from from a practical perspective, it still made sense to believe in free will. Because nobody could understand you better than you understand yourself. You had this inner realm of desires and thoughts and feelings, which you had privileged access to. This inner realm. Yeah,
1: but that, that but that's that hasn't changed today, right? Like
2: that access. It has is changed. Still... There is no longer the privileged access now belongs to corporations like Google. They can have access to things happening ultimately, inside my body and brain, which I don't know about. There is somebody out there, and not just one, all kinds of corporations and governments, that maybe not today, maybe in five years, 10 years, 20 years, they will have privileged access to what's happening inside me, more privileged than my access. They could understand what is happening in my brain better than I understand it which means they will never be perfect.
1: Right, but you will as a, as a, a free person, right? Like you will have delegated that access or that, that ability to this corporation or this machine
2: or this No, No, You don't have to give them permission. I mean, in some countries, maybe you have no choice at all. But even in a, in a democracy like the United States, a lot of the information that enables an external entity to hack you, um, nobody asks you whether you want to give it away or not. Now, at present, most of the data that is being collected on on humans is still from the skin outwards. We we haven't seen nothing yet. We are still just at the tip of of, of this revolution. Because at present, whether it's Google and Facebook and Amazon or whether it's the government or whatever, they are, are trying to understand people mainly on the basis of what I, what I search, what I buy, where I go, who I meet, it's all external. The really big revolution, which is coming very quickly, will be when the AI revolution and machine learning and all that, the infotech revolution, meets and merges with the biotech revolution and goes under the skin. When biometric sensors or even external devices, now we we are developing the ability, for example, to know the, uh, the blood pressure of individuals just by looking at them. You don't need to put a sensor on a person. Just by looking at the face, you can tell what is the blood pressure of that individual. And by analyzing tiny movements in the eyes, in the mouth, you can tell all kinds of things from the current mood of the person, are you angry, are you bored, to things like sexual orientation. So um, we are talking about a world in which humans are no longer a black box. Nobody really understands what happens inside, so we say, okay, free will. No, the box is open. And it's open to others, certain others, more than it is open to you. You don't understand what's happening in your brain, but some corporation or government or organization could understand that.
1: And, and that's a theme that you explore in, in Homo Deus pretty-, uh, uh, pretty
2: yeah, Both in Homo Deus yeah. and in, in, in 21 Lessons. Yeah. Uh, this is like the, the, maybe the most important thing to understand is that this is really happening. And at present, almost all the attention goes to the AI. Like now I, I've been on a two weeks tour of, of the US for the publication of the book. Everybody wants to speak about AI. Like AI, and I, the previous book, Homo Came Out, nobody cared about AI. Two years later, it's like everywhere. It's the new hot thing. It's, yeah, and I try to emphasize, it's not AI. The really important thing is actually the other side. It's the biotech, it's the combination. It's only the combination, it, it's only with the help of biology that AI becomes really revolutionary. Because just to a thought experiment, let's say we had the, the best, AI, the most developed AI in the world. But humans were not animals, were not biochemical algorithms, but they were something like transcendent souls that make decisions through free will. In such a world, AI would not have mattered much because AI in such a world could never have replaced teachers and lawyers and doctors. You could not even build self-driving cars in such a world because to put a self-driving car on the road You need biology, not just computers. You need to understand humans. For example, if if somebody is approaching the road, the car needs to tell, is this an 80-year-old, an 18-year-old, or an 80-year-old? And needs to understand the different behaviors of a human child, a human teenager, and a human adult. And this is biology. And similarly, to to have really effective, like self-driving taxis, you need the car to understand a lot of things about human psychology, the psychology of the passengers coming in and what they want and, and, and so forth. So if you take the biotech out of the equation, AI by Some itself the value goes won't away. really yeah. go, go very far.
1: That, so I want to I push you there, because I think it's, uh, it's easy to... Um uh, arrive at a dystopian view of what that world would look like with the uh, bio and, and, and uh, uh, AI and cognitive abilities of, of machines uh, when they meet like what how, how that could end up right and we see, we see that in Hollywood and th- that dystopian view is, is is well documented but i want to I want to um, explore with you like what what are some of the benefits mm. of that combination, and how can that lead to an alternative uh, world view than, than what's explored more deeply in
2: Homo Deus? Well, it should be emphasized that there are enormous benefits, otherwise there would be no temptation. If it was only bad, nobody would do it. Uh, Google w- won't research it. Nobody would invest in it. And it should also be emphasized that uh, technology is never deterministic. You can build either paradise or hell with these technologies. Uh, they are not just, they don't have just one, one type of usage. And As a historian and as a social critic and and maybe philosopher, I tend to focus more on the dangerous scenarios simply because for for obvious reasons, uh, the entrepreneurs and the corporations and the scientists and engineers are developing these technologies. They naturally tend to focus on the positive scenarios, on all the good it can do. But yes, I, I definitely acknowledge it can do a tremendous amount of good to humanity. Uh, to take the example of the self-driving cars. So um, at present, about 1.25 million people are killed each year in traffic accidents. More than 90% of these accidents are because of human errors. If we can replace humans with self-driving cars, it's not that we'll have no car accidents, that's impossible, but we'll probably save a million lives every year. So this is a tremendous thing. And similarly, the the, the combination of of being able to understand what's happening inside my body, this also implies that you can uh, provide people with the best healthcare in history. You can, for example, diagnose diseases long before the person understands that there is something wrong. At present, the human mind or human awareness is still a very critical junction in healthcare. Like if, if something happens inside my body and I don't know about it, I won't go to the doctor. So if something like, I don't know, cancer is now spreading in my liver and I still don't feel anything, I won't go to the doctor, I won't know about it, only when I start feeling pain and nausea and all kinds of things I can't explain. So after some time I go to the doctor, he does all kinds of tests, and finally they, they discover, oh, something is wrong. And very often it's, uh, by, that, by that time, it's very expensive too and painful, late, yeah. not necessarily too late, but expensive and painful to take care of it. Uh, if I could have an AI doctor monitoring my body 24 hours a day uh, with biometric sensors and so forth, it could discover this long before I feel anything. At, at, at a stage when it's still very cheap, and easy and painless to cure it. So this is, this is wonderful.
1: But in, in that world, it's an AI doctor, and not a human doctor. And I think one of the, the uh, potential uh, outcomes that you warn about is um, AI or machines or that combination of bio and, 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 and AI replacing us, replacing yeah. us as humans. And I, 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 I'd, I'd like to think that one thing that, that makes us uh, human is having meaning in life or having a purpose uh, for living. That's, that's, a, that's a, a kind of a unique thing that, that, that humans have. And I don't think it's something that we would readily wanna give up, right? Mm-hmm. So as this technology is evolving and we're developing it, it's likely something that will bake in this need uh, to have meaning and, and, and purpose in, in, in life. You uh, talk about in twenty one lessons this notion that, that God is is dead and, and or is God back and, and mm. the, the 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 role that um, uh, religion may play uh, mm. in, in how we um, uh, progress as, as humans. Is there a place for that that notion of God or or religion to capture and secure like this mm. this notion of meaning in life or purpose in life?
2: Well, it, it all depends on the definitions. I mean the. Are many kinds of gods, and and people understand very different things by the word religion. If you think about God, so usually people have very two extremely different gods in mind when they say the word God. One God is the cosmic mystery. We don't understand why there is something rather than nothing, why the Big Bang happened, what is human consciousness. There are many things we don't understand about the world, and some people choose to call these mysteries by the name of God. God is the reason there is something rather than nothing. God is uh, behind human consciousness. But the most characteristic thing of that God is that we know absolutely nothing about him, her, it, they. Uh, there is nothing concrete. It's, 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 the, it's a mystery. And and this is kind of the God we talk about when late at night in in the desert, we sit around a campfire and we think about the meaning of life. That's one kind of God. I have no problem at all with this God. I like it very much. (laughs) Then there is another God, which is the petty lawgiver. The chief characteristic of this God, we know a lot of extremely concrete things about that God. We know what he thinks about Uh, female dress code. What kind of dresses he likes uh, uh, women to wear. We know what he thinks about sexuality. We know what he thinks about food, about politics, and we know like these tiny little things. And this is the God people talk about when they stand around uh, uh, burning a heretic. We burn you because you did something that this God, we know everything about this God and he didn't, he doesn't like it that you do this so we we burn you. And it's like, you know, it's like a magic trick that when you you come and talk about God, so uh, how do you know that God exists and and, and so forth? People would say, well, the big bang and human consciousness and and science can't explain this and science can't explain that. And then, and, and this is true. And then like a magician, swapping one card for another, they will <laughs> sh- take out the mystery garden place, the, uh, the, the, the petty lawgiver, and you end up with something strange like, because we don't understand the Big Bang, women must dress with long sleeves and men shouldn't have sex together. <laughs> and what's the connection? I mean, how did you get from here to there? So just, I prefer to use different, different, different terms here. And it's the same with religion. People understand very different things with this word. I tend to to, to separate religions from spirituality. Spirituality is about questions. Religion is about answers. Spirituality is when you have some big question about life, like what is humanity? What is the good? Uh, uh, Who am I? Yeah, these my, kinds my of questions. in life, like why, why yeah, am I here? Yeah, and what should I do in life? And and this is kind of and you go on a quest, looking uh, deeply into these questions, and you're willing to go after these questions wherever they take you. You could just Google it. Ah, uh, yeah, <laughs> maybe in the future, but so far, in at least some of these questions, when you I think when you type like what is the meaning of life, you get forty two, like there's the, the, a the number one result <laughs> in the Google search. Um, so, so you go on a spiritual quest. And religion is the exact opposite. Religion is somebody comes and telling you, this is the answer, you must believe it. If you don't believe this answer, then you will burn in hell after you die, or you will we'll burn you here, even before you die. <laughs> and it's, it's really opposite things. Now, I think that at the present moment in history, spirituality is probably more important than in any previous time in history because we are now forced to confront spiritual questions, whether we like it or not. And, pre- and do you think that confrontation
1: with those questions, that will inform how we allow technology to develop and be deployed?
2: Exactly. Now, in most, throughout history, you always had a small minority of people who was very interested in the big spiritual and philosophical questions of life. And most people just ignored them and went along with, with their like, you know, fighting about who owns this land and, and then the, this goat herd the, to whom it belongs and so forth. Now we live in a very unique time in history when engineers must tackle spiritual questions. If you are building a self-driving car, by force, you have to deal with questions like free will By force, you have to deal with this the example everybody gives the self driving car. Suddenly, two kids jump running after a ball, jump in front of the car. The only way to save the two kids is to swerve to the side and fall off a cliff and kill the owner of the car who is asleep in the back seat. What should the car do? Now, philosophers have been arguing about these questions for thousands of years with very little impact on on human life. Now, but Engineers are, not, uh, not like, they are very impatient. If you want to put the self-driving car on the road tomorrow or next year, that, right? you need to tell the algorithm what to do. Like, the amazing thing about, about this question now is that whatever you decide, this will actually happen. Previously, with philosophical discussions, like you had, I don't know, Kant and Schopenhauer and Mill discussing this issue, should I kill the two kids? or should I sacrifice my life? And even if they reach an agreement, they have very little impact on actual behavior because even if you agree theoretically this is the right thing to do, at a time of crisis, you'd, philosophy has little power. You react from your gut, not from your philosophical theories. But with a self-driving car, if you program the algorithm to kill the driver, and and not the driver, the owner of the car, and not the two kids, you have a guarantee, a mathematical guarantee, that this is exactly what the car will do. So you have to think far more carefully than ever before what is the right answer. So in in this sense, very old spiritual and philosophical questions are now practical questions of engineering which you cannot escape if you want, for example, to put a self-driving car on the road.
1: I wanna go back to the, this concept of uh, religion versus spirituality and like the role that play. In Sapiens, your first book, uh, you talk about this concept of um, human fictions or like stories that we create as, as humans, uh, I guess to get us uh, through life and to get us through our interactions with each other. Um, those fictions, those stories, as you put it, they've they've served us well. They've resulted in a lot of good for, humankind, but have also been the source of, of wars and conflict and, and, and human suffering. Yeah. How do you square that with this moment we're in where spirit, spirituality uh, is an integral part in how we uh, think about integrating technology in our lives?
2: Um, phew. <laughs> that's, a, that's a big question. Well, so far in history, in order to organize humans on a large scale, you always had to have some story, some fiction, which humans invented, but which enough humans believed in order to agree on how to behave. It's not just religion. This is the obvious example that uh, even religious people would agree that all religions, except one, are fictional stories, (laughs) except is, of course, my my religion. Uh, If you ask a Jew? Then they will tell you, yes, Judaism is the truth, that's for sure, but all these billions of Christians and Muslims and Hindus, they believe in fictional stories. I mean, all this story about Jesus rising from the dead and being the son of God, this is fake news. Wait, that's not true? Uh, if you ask a Jew, like a oh, rabbi. You okay. know, rabbis tend to be like, to hedge their bets. So maybe, <laughs> maybe not. But then you go to the Christians, they will say, no, 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 no. This is true. But the Muslims, they believe in fake news. All this story about Muhammad meeting the archangel Gabriel and the Quran coming from heaven—this is all fake news. And then you have the Muslims; they'll tell you this about Hinduism. So even the, in religion, it's very clear. The more interesting thing is that the same is true in, in something like in the economy. Corporation—you can't have a modern economy without corporations like Google and without money like dollars. But Corporations and currencies, they are also just stories we invented. Google has no physical or biological reality. It is a story created by the powerful shamans we call lawyers. It's, <laughs> e- e- even if you ask lawyers, what is Google? Like you push them to the what is it? They will tell you it's a legal fiction. It's not, the, it's not this chair, it belongs to Google, I think. But this is not, it's, it's, it's not it. it, it's not the money, it's not the managers, it's not the workers, it's a story created by lawyers. And for example, I mean, if you, somehow it's some natural calamity, destroys, like there is an earthquake and the Google complex collapses, Google still exists. Even if many of the workers and managers are killed, it just hires new ones. And it still has money in the bank. And even if there is no money in the bank, they can, they can get a loan and build new buildings, and hire new people, and everything is okay. But then if you have one of the the most powerful shaman, like the Supreme Court of the United States, come and says, I don't like your story. I think you need to be broken into two different fictions, then that's the end. So so you, (laughs) that's a lot to unpack.
1: So the the advent that we're in now with fake news and really um uh seriously questioning what veracity means and and uh how veracity impacts these this kind of foundational uh things that you laid out earlier in in, in your remarks that have, that have allowed us to work with each other, work across borders, et cetera. With this, where you are on this, this notion of stories and, and fictions that we have, is this advent of fake news, is that, is, is, is that a reality? Is that where yeah, we I, should be in terms uh, of questioning what's uh, true and what's not true?
2: On the one hand, fake news is old news. We've had them throughout history uh, and in, sometimes in much worse form than what we see today. But uh, is, there, is there such thing as, as truth? Yes, there is absolutely. I mean, there, there is reality. I mean, you have all these stories people tell about reality. I see. But ultimately, there is reality. Um, the best test of reality that I know is, is the test of suffering. Suffering is the most real thing in the world. Uh, if you want to know whether a story is about a real entity or a fictional entity, you should just ask, can this entity actually suffer? Now, Google cannot suffer. Even if the stock goes down, even if a judge comes and says, this is a monopoly, you have to break it up, well, It doesn't suffer. Humans can suffer, like the, 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 the managers, the, 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 uh, the owners of the stocks, the, the, the employees, they can suffer. My girls. Yeah, <laughs> they can certainly suffer. Uh, but we know, we can know very easily that Google is just a story by this simple test that it cannot suffer. And it's the same of nations, it's the same of currencies, the dollar is just a, a fiction recreated, the dollar doesn't suffer if it loses its value.
1: Let me push you on that, right? So um, uh, oftentimes, like just in the US, they say the, the kind of uh, the system we set up in the US is an experiment. It's often uh, styled as an experiment, uh, democracy with the uh, checks and balances, etc. cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, under one view of that, you can say that that's, that's kind of a, a story that we've created in America, right? We've created this this kind of really nice uh, story. But if that was broken apart, like that entity is not not, not suffering. But if that experiment is the thing, the, the, the proper functioning of those institutions and the things that support that story, oh, that's we, the thing. We know
2: that it functions properly because it alleviates suffering. It provides healthcare, it provides safety, and if it doesn't, then we would say the experiment doesn't work. The so would, you say that,
1: would you say that experiment is a fiction or is that experiment reality?
2: Is it no, a thing? The experiment is a story that we share. It's things that we humans have invented and created in order to serve certain needs and, and desires that we have. It is a created story and not an objective reality, but it is nevertheless one of the most powerful forces in the world. When I say that something is, is a fiction or a story, I don't mean to imply it's bad or that it's not important. No, some of the best things in the world and the most powerful forces in the world are these shared fictions. Uh, nations and corporations and banks and, and so forth, they are all stories we created, but they are the most powerful forces today in the world, far more powerful than any human being or any animal. And they can be a tremendous force for good. The key is to remember that we created them to serve us and not that we are here in order to serve them. The, the trouble really begins when people lose sight of, 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 the, of, of the simple reality that we are real, they are not. And a lot of people throughout history and also today, they kind of take it upside down. They think the nation is more real than me. I am here to serve it and not it is here to serve me and, and my fellow humans.
1: Very interesting. So. Uh, we're going to open it up for questions from the audience in a, in a few minutes here, but I want to try to get uh, an easy win. So in, in 21 Lessons, you, you tackle really big uh, challenges and questions that, that we're wrestling with today. Um, of those, those questions, uh, which do you think is the easiest to solve? And what should we be doing to go about solving it?
2: Ooh, what is the easiest to solve?
1: Ah. Uh... <laughs> trying to get quick wins on the board here <laughs> yeah. for us. So uh, you you. you,
2: you I'll, I'll, I'll address the fake news uh, question, not because it's the easiest to solve, but also maybe because it's one of the most relevant to w- what you're doing here in, in Google. And I would say that the current incarnation of the fake news problem has a lot to do with the model of the news and information market that we have constructed a model which basically says um, exciting news for free in exchange for your attention. And this is a very problematic model uh, because it, it, it turns human attention into the most scarce resource and you get more and more competition for human attention Um, with more and more exciting news that, again, and and some of the smartest people in the world have learned how to excite our brain, how to make us click on the next news story. And truth gets completely pushed aside. It's not part of the equation. Uh, The equation is excitement, attention, excitement, attention. And on the collective level, I think the solution to this problem would be to change the model of the news market to high quality news that cost you a lot of money, but don't abuse your attention. It's very strange that we are in a situation when people are willing to pay a lot of money for high quality food and high quality cars, but not for high quality news. And this has a lot to do with the architecture. Of, of the information market, and I think there, is, there are many things that you here in Google can do in order to help society change the, the model of the news market. I'd,
1: I'd want to uh, continue to explore that and whether that would create like an economic divide or exacerbate the, the current uh, divide, but I'm going to open it up now for audience questions. We can start with you. Hi. Uh, thank you so much for writing your books. They're completely wonderful, and I've had a joy reading them. Uh, so. One of the things that you kind of explore here is we are facing a couple of global problems. Uh, and historically, we have never created global uh, global organizations which are responsible for solving global problems who had any ability to enforce them. And even when we have created them, they have come after great tragedies.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, so how can we sort of make that happen and make somebody responsible and have the ability to uh, have those organizations enforce those uh, solutions? Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not going to be easy. And, uh, but I think the most important thing is to change the public conversation and focus it on the global problems. If people focus on local problems, they don't see the need for effective global cooperation. So the first step is to tell people again and again and again, look, the three biggest problems that everybody on the planet is now facing are nuclear war, climate change, and technological disruption. And even if we are able to prevent nuclear war and climate change, it's still AI and biotech are going to completely disrupt the job market, and even the human body. And we need to figure out how to regulate this and how to prevent the dystopian consequences and make sure that the more utopian consequences materialize. And for that, we need global cooperation. So it should be obvious to everybody, you cannot prevent climate change on a national level, and you cannot regulate AI on a national level whatever regulation the U.S. adopts, if the Chinese are not adopting it, uh, it won't do much help. So you need cooperation here. And, um, and then it goes into practical political issues. I mean, you have an elections coming up, midterm elections in the U.S. So if you go to a, a, a town meeting with an inspiring congressman or congresswoman, so you just ask them, what are you going, if I elect you, what will you do? about the danger of climate change, about the danger of nuclear war, and about uh, getting global regulations for AI and for biotech. What's your plan? And if they say, oh, I haven't thought about it, uh, then maybe don't vote for that person.
1: (laughs) Question.
3: Hi, Yuval. Thanks for coming here today. So uh, in one of your talks, you suggested that uh, to avoid getting our hearts hacked, We need to stay ahead by knowing ourselves better. And it seems to me that the process of knowing yourself needs a lot of intelligence. And in some ways it's a skill that needs to be developed. I mean, the intellect that we have as humans seems fairly new when compared to other properties that we got evolutionarily. Mm -hmm. So um, how do you suggest that we can learn to think and use our intelligence better and also do that at a scale because if only some people know themselves, but millions around you or billions around you don't, then, then you can only go so far. Well, I, I
2: don't think that knowing yourself is necessarily uh, about, all about intelligence, certainly not in the narrow sense of intelligence. If you include emotional intelligence and so forth, then yes. But in, in the more, more narrow sense of like IQ, I think this is not some of the, the there are many very intelligent people in the world who don't know themselves at all uh, which is an extremely dangerous combination. Now some people uh, explore themselves through therapy. Some use meditation, some use art, some use sports. They like go on a long hike, go for for a month to the Appalachian Trail and and get to know themselves on, on the way. There are many ways to do it which are not necessarily about intellect. It's not like reading articles about brain science. That can help in in some ways. And in this sense, I think it's a very kind of uh, uh, democratizing ability or or force to to get to know yourself. After all, all, you're always with yourself. It's not like you need some special laboratory and to get some very rare machines from, I don't know, it costs millions of dollars. You just need yourself.
3: Sure, but what about the art of thinking? Like, what about? The art of thinking.
2: The art of thinking? Um,
3: I mean, people are very intelligent, but they don't really use their intelligence to understand themselves, right?
2: Yeah, um, uh, Again, there, there is no easy way to do it. If it was easy to get to know yourself better, everybody would do it long ago, and we would be living in a very, very different world.
1: Uh, we, ha- we have folks joining us from, our, from around the world as well, so I have a question from, um, from the, the question bank. Uh, compassion is the critical underpinning of any successful society, yet I believe that technology is reducing our capacit- capacity for empathy. Mm-hmm. It feels that we no longer value compassion, perhaps even seeing compassion as, as weak. What are, in your view, effective ways to motivate members of society to develop their compassion?
2: Mm. No, I don't think that technology is inherently uh, undermining compassion, yeah, it, it can go bo- both ways. Uh, certainly, uh, communication technology can make you aware of the plight of people on the other side of the world. And without that, you may be extremely compassionate about your immediate like, family members and neighbors and won't care at all about people on the other side of the world. So I don't think there is an inherent contradiction or, or, or collision between uh, uh, technology and and, and compassion. But it is true that um, the way we design technology can make us uh, uh, less compassionate, and even the way that we design ourselves. Um, For most of history, so you had economic and political systems trying to shape people And in the past, they did it with education and with uh, culture. And in the present and future, we are likely to do it more and more with biotech and with brain-computer interfaces. So our our ability to manipulate ourselves is, 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 is growing. And therefore, it's extremely important to remember to take compassion into account. Otherwise, the danger is that you know, armies and corporations and government, in many cases, they want something like intelligence. They want more intelligent workers and soldiers. They want more decisive workers and soldiers. Don't take a whole day to decide. I want you to, 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 to decide this in half an hour. And as our ability to manipulate humans, and I mean re-engineer the, the, the body and the brain, as it grows, uh, we might engineer more decisive and intelligent humans at the price of compassion, which many corporations and armies and governments find either irrelevant or even problematic because it causes people to be hesitant and to take more time about their decisions and, and, and so on and so forth. So uh, we need to, to remember the, the, the enormous importance of, of compassion And again, it goes back also to the question about getting to know yourself, which I think is the key to developing compassion. Uh, Not just because when you understand your own that, that this makes me miserable, then you understand, oh, the same thing may make other people also miserable. It's even much deeper than that. When you really get to know yourself, you realize that when you ignore others and when you mistreat others, very often it harms you even before it harms them. It's a very unpleasant experience to be angry. Uh, So your anger may harm other people, or maybe not. Maybe you're you're boiling with anger about somebody and you don't do anything about it because she's your boss. Uh, But you don't harm her, but your, your anger harms you. So the more you, uh, you understand yourself, the greater incentive you have to do something about my anger, about my hatred, about my fear. And most people discover that as they develop more compassion towards others, they also experience far more peace within themselves.
1: Wow, another live question.
3: Thank you. Um, After reading your books, it occurs to me that you've most likely educated yourself um, both broadly and deeply to be the foundation for your ideas.
1: For those of us that are interested in cultivating our minds similarly, I wonder if you could share a little bit about your reading habits and how
2: you Mm. choose what to consume. Well, my reading habits, Um, I read very eclectically, like no book is is bowed uh, uh, from from entering the, 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 the book list, but then I tend to be extremely impatient about the books I actually read, I would begin like 10 books and drop nine of them after 10 pages. Um, It's not always the wisest policy, but it's my policy (laughs) that if a book didn't really teach me something new, had some interesting insight in the first 10 pages, the chances it will, uh, it could be that on page 100, there'll be some mind blowing idea that I'm now missing. But uh, there are so many, I, I keep thinking there are so many books out, wonderful books out there that I will never read. So why waste time on, 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 on a less optimal, optimal book? So I would try like a book on biology and then economics and then psychology and then fiction and, 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 and whatever and just go through them quite quickly until I find something that really grabs me. Another live question?
1: Hi, Mr. Ari, uh, thanks for being here. Fascinating talk, as always. Um, I do a little bit of meditation myself, and I've heard that you do a lot of meditation on the order of hours a day. Is is that right?
2: I I try to do two hours every day, and I try to go every year to a long retreat of 45 or 60 days.
1: So I was wondering, how do you feel that has influenced your life and and the ideas that you have?
2: Oh, it had a a, a tremendous influence. I think both of, on, on my inner peace of mind, but also on my work as a scientist. maybe the two most important influences is that first it enabled me to, to have a more clarity and more focus. And certainly when you write about such big subjects, like trying to summarize the whole of history in 400 pages. So having a very, very focused mind is, is very important because the great difficulty is that you, everything kind of of distracts you. You start writing about the Roman empire and you say, well, I have to explain this and this and this and this, and and you end up with 4,000 pages. So you have to be very, what is really important and what can be left outside? And the other thing is that at least the the meditation that I, I practice, which is Vipassana meditation, it's all about really knowing the difference between the fictions and stories generated by our mind and the reality, what is really happening right now? And when, when, when I meditate, w- w- the things that happens is that constantly the mind is like a factory that constantly generates uh, stories about myself, about other people, about the world, that, and they are very attractive and like an, I, I, I get identified with them. And the meditation is constantly don't, it's just a story, leave it just try to stay with what is really happening right now. And this is the central practice in, in meditation. It's also a, a, a guiding principle when I study history or, or when I study what's happening in the world. Great, thank you.
1: Uh, let's take another question from the uh, from the Dory. With inequality rising across most nations in the last few decades, uh, what is your perspective on how we can use technological growth to solve this problem and create a more equitable world do we need a different economic parati- paradigm to achieve this
2: yes we probably need a different economic uh, uh, paradigm because we are entering kind of uncharted waters uh, especially because of the automation revolution and the growing likelihood that more and more people will might be completely pushed out of the job market not just because there won't be enough jobs but simply because the, 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 the pace of change in the job market will accelerate. So even if there are enough jobs, people don't have the psychological balance and, and stamina to constantly retrain, reskill, reinvent themselves. Um, and so I think that the biggest problem in the job market is really going to be this, the, the psychological problem. And then what do you do when more and more people are, are, are left out? And There are explorations of of new models like universal basic income and and so forth, which are worth exploring. I don't have the answers. I would just say that anybody who thinks in terms like universal basic income should take the word universal very, very seriously and not settle for national basic income because the, the greatest inequality we are facing will probably be inequality between countries and not within countries. Some countries are likely to become extremely wealthy due to the automation revolution, and California is certainly uh, uh, one of these places. Other countries might lose everything because their entire economy depends on things like manual labor, which will lose its importance and they just don't have the resources and the educational system to kind of turn themselves into high-tech hubs. So the really crucial question is not how do we, what, what do we do about, uh, I don't know, Americans in Indiana who lose their jobs. The really important questions is what do we do about people in Guatemala or Bangladesh who lose their jobs? Uh, This should be, I think, the the focus of of this question of inequality.
1: We'll take another live question.
2: Hello, Mr. Hari. Uh, Thank you for doing this Q&A. So, at Google, we have a responsibility to build products and services which not only achieve results for our shareholders, but also that actually benefit our end users. So, in order to spend less time hacking humans um, and spend more time reducing suffering, we need to understand what type of future we want to build. Um, So, what I wanted to ask you is, what are your personal methodologies for making predictions about the future and what suggestions would you give to Googlers who want to have a more reverse understanding of the future? Hmm. As I said in the very beginning, I don't think we can predict the future, but I think we can influence it. Uh, What I try to do as a a historian, and even when I talk about the future, I define myself as a historian because I think that history is not the study of the past. History is the study of change how human societies and and political systems and economies change. And what I try to do is to map different possibilities rather than make predictions. This is what will happen in 2050. And we need to, 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 to keep a very broad perspective. One of the biggest dangers is when we have a very narrow perspective like we develop a new technology and we think, oh, this technology will have this outcome. And we are convinced of this prediction. And we don't take into account that the same technology might have very different outcomes. And uh, then we don't prepare. And we don't, and again, as I said at the beginning, it's especially important to take into account the worst possible outcomes in order to to be aware of them. Um, So I would say whenever you're thinking about the future, the future impact of a, of a technology I'm developing, create a map of different possibilities. If you see just one possibility, you're not looking wide enough. If you see two or three, it's probably also not wide enough. You need a map of like four or five different possibilities minimum.
1: Let's take another uh, live question.
2: Hey, I'm hey, um, Sir Um So my question is, I'll, I'll start um, very broad and then I'll narrow it down for, for
3: the focus. I'm really interested in what do you think are the components that make these fictional uh, stories so powerful in how they guide human nature? Mm. And
2: and then if I narrow it down is I'm specifically interested in the self-destruction behavior of humans. How can these fictional stories led by a few people convince the mass to literally kill or die for that fictional Mm. story? It again goes back to to hacking the brain and hacking the human animal. Um, It's been done throughout history, previously just by trial and error, without the deep knowledge of, of brain science and evolution we have today. But to give an example, like if you want to convince people to persecute and exterminate some other group of people, what you need to do is really latch onto the disgust mechanisms in the human brain. Evolution has shaped homo sapiens with very powerful disgust mechanisms in the brain to protect us against diseases, against all kinds of sources of potential disease. And if you look at the history of bias and prejudice and genocide, One recurring theme is that it repeatedly kind of latches on to these disgust mechanisms. And so you would find things like uh, women are impure or uh, these other people, they smell bad and they bring diseases. And very, very often disgust is at the center. So you'll often find comparison between Uh, uh, certain types of of humans and rats, or cockroaches, or all kinds of other disgusting things. So if you want to instigate genocide, you start by hacking the disgust mechanisms in the human brain. And this is very, very deep. Um, And if it's done from an early age, it's extremely difficult afterwards. People can, they know intellectually that it's wrong to say that these people are disgusting, that uh, uh, these people, they smell bad and then they, but they know it intellectually. But when you, you place them like in a brain scanner, they can't help it. If they were raised, I mean, so we can still do something about it. We can still kind of defeat this, but it's very difficult because it's, it, it really goes to the core of, of the brain. So I'll
1: end on a, on a final question, because we're, we're at time. Um, when Larry and Sergey, when they founded Google, they did so with this, uh, this deep belief in technology's ability to um, improve people's lives everywhere. Uh, so if you had a magic wand, and you could give Google a, the next big project for us to work on uh, in, in 30 hmm. seconds or less, what would, what would you um, grant us as our assignment?
2: An AI system that gets to know me in order to protect me and not in order to sell me products or make me click on advertisements and so forth. All right, mission accepted. (laughs) Thank you guys.
0: Thanks for listening. If you have any feedback about this or any other episode, we'd love to hear from you. You can visit g.co slash talks at Google slash to leave your comments. To discover more insightful content, you can always find us via youtube.com slash talks at Google or via our Twitter handle at Google Talks. Talk soon.